If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I know in your order of worship it says John 17. That was user error on my part. Uh, leadership error, not user error. Uh, leadership error on my part. Pilot error, as Andres, I guess, has already uh, alluded to in this service. But we're actually back in Ephesians. It's been a couple of weeks, and Paul is transitioning his argument from the union that we have by faith individually to the Lord Jesus Christ to the ramifications of that union that we have with the body of Christ and with the world. So that's where he's going uh, starting here in Ephesians chapter 3. I am going to read uh, from verse 1 through verse 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for the mystery of the gospel, Lord Jesus, made known to us in your word. We pray that we would soak in it and be encouraged in it, even challenged by it this morning. In your name, amen. Have you ever experienced something in your life that was just so incredibly wondrous that you couldn't explain it or you couldn't put it into words. Um, For me, the birth of my children was like that. You know, um, if you witness that or if you experience that, it just doesn't do. If your friend calls you the next day and goes, hey, how was that? For you just to go, yeah, you know, it's all right. Uh, It's okay. It's not no, no big deal. You you can't really do that about something like childbirth. It's like you're you're searching and you're grappling for words, you know, like miraculous or glorious or incredible. Basically, it's just indescribable, right? Well, if you've ever had a situation like that in your life where you have struggled to put words to something you have experienced, you're in very good company because the Apostle Paul is just trying to get it out you know in Ephesians chapter 3 it's just like so amazing he's just trying to find words to describe it and here's another thing that's encouraging about Ephesians chapter 3 if you have ever started praying 
only to have your mind wander to something else. I'm sure this never happens to any of y'all, but I will confess that, you know, on occasion, uh, you know, the grocery list has popped into my head, uh, uh, you know, while praying. Well, you're in good company here too, because Paul starts a prayer in verse 1 of Ephesians 3, and then he just forgets about it. He just he starts praying, and he just goes off and talks about something else. He doesn't actually pick his prayer back up until verse 14 when he repeats the words for this reason. It's like Paul starts this prayer, and he's like, oh, yeah, I've got this amazing parentheses, you know, here. And then he, you know, finally winds his way back to his prayer in verse 14. And what you see in that parentheses is pretty incredible. Because whatever experience in this life that you've ever had that you think just cannot be topped, you know, um, a relationship, a wedding, the birth of a child, a a new job, moving into a a new home, a vacation spot at a really beautiful and wondrous place, whatever those things are, Paul says in verse 3, this is nothing. It is nothing compared to God's cosmic purposes that are being worked out in the world By his church, that is what is glorious, Paul says. Now, this passage is incredibly theologically rich, and it's going to be impossible to deal with all of it. But I think that the the purpose behind Paul's exuberance is really summarized most clearly in verse 10, where Paul says that the church... And, and the church is, uh, it has two aspects to it. The church is defined most broadly as all people in all places from all time that trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is made tangible by local expressions of that global, worldwide, you know, generational body of Christ in places like this, like Christ the King. So Paul says the church is the witness to the wisdom of God to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. And that's really confusing. So we're going to talk about it. It's a mouthful, and we'll have to do our best to unpack it. Because it's really important, because if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, this kind of gives you your why. You know, this is kind of like, this is your purpose statement in, in life as a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're an unbeliever, this is, this is meant to challenge you uh, and, and encourage you about why the purposes of God in the cosmos are so incredible and so amazing. So, first, what is the wisdom of God that we witness to? Uh, what's the wisdom of God that we are called to witness to? Now, God is not random. He's not purposeless. He's purposeful. Since before the creation of the world, and Paul's already talked about this in other places in Ephesians, since before the creation of the world, God has had a plan of redemption that culminated in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But incredibly, God's plan of redemption, though culminating in Jesus, didn't stop there. Jesus ascended into heaven, and when he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, you will be my witnesses. And these disciples go and they plant churches, and and he says to these churches, like he says here in Ephesians, you will be the witnesses of Jesus in the world. And on and on and on and on it goes until Jesus returns. Paul describes this as the mystery of God. 
Now, he's used these words before in Ephesians, and when he says the mystery of God, he's not saying that God is trying to hold something back from you, that he's not telling, he's, you know, that if you're smart enough, you'll figure it out. When he says the mystery of God, think about it more like the layers of an onion, that over the course of time in God's redemptive plan and purposes, one layer has been pulled back, and then another layer, and then another layer, and then another layer, until you see the meat and the heart of it, which is Jesus Christ himself. But here's the thing, and this is the, this is the surprising part of this passage. Jesus isn't the mystery that Paul is talking about here, not in this passage. Here, in this passage, the mystery that is revealed is the existence and unity of a people that God has left on this earth to accomplish his purposes. This people is called the church. So the mystery that is revealed, first of all, is the very fact of the church. Look at verse 6. Paul says this very explicitly. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. And then he reiterates that in chapter 10 by saying that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to us. In other words, God has done something. God has accomplished something through the power of the Holy Spirit that doesn't happen in our world. It is not the way that the world works. He has broken down the barriers that normally divide us as human beings. And he has replaced our normative identity markers that culturally connect us with groups of human beings. And he's replaced them with something else. Now think about this for just a minute. And, it's, and this is not, I mean, I do this all the time. We're human beings. This is the way that we interact in the world. And so be, be really honest with yourself here. What are the markers of identity that you use to determine the potential of relationship with another human being? Um, there, there are about a million of them. And we have an operating system where we kind of churn through these even at a subconscious level, right? There, there are about a million micro-calculations that we go through every time we meet another human or come into contact with another human. They kind of say, hey, this is somebody that maybe I can invest in or, you know, this is somebody that I'll be really polite to but, you know, maybe never talk to again, right? So what are they, you know? Is this a man or a woman? Uh, handsome, beautiful, tall or short, What's their body composition? What are they wearing? You know, what kind of shoes they have on? What's their race? Where do they live? Where do they go to school? What do they do? You know, all those things are just constantly playing out in our minds all of the time. All of this is churning in the background of our operating system. It's normal. We're human. It's, it, this is sort of the way that we work. And we can't have intimate relationships with every human being. We can't have intimate relationships with every person in the church. But it is important to understand that none of those criteria that we use in those contexts are primary. They're all secondary or even tertiary. They're not our primary identity that knit us together in this new community called the church. So if it's not that, what is it? Well, the fact of the church is based upon the faith of the church. The fact of the church is based upon the faith of the church. 
our primary common identity is that we are, in Paul's words, fellow heirs of the promise by God's grace. Our entrance into that identity, that thing that knits us together as one body in all of our diversity as human beings, is a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul calls in verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this means that our common profession of faith, and by the way, we do this every single week that we get together in worship, both through our affirmation of faith, but when we come to the Lord's table. When every single week, as a body, not just as individuals, we all say together, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This is exactly what binds the church together. And this common profession of a common faith supersedes all of our other identity markers that we naturally as human beings use to identify the people that we'll bind ourselves to in the world. Because all of those other things are destined to pass away. They're all going to pass away. But here's the beauty of the gospel. In eternity, when you and I, when we are gathered around the throne of, uh, of Jesus, and we're gathered there with people from every tribe and every nation and every language under heaven, when we are all glorified, when there's no more sin, when we are all made radiant in our resurrected bodies, where rich or poor has absolutely no meaning whatsoever, where we're sitting side by side with people that, from, from every conceivable uh, you know, kind of subgroup heading of, of, of the existence of the world, we're still going to be proclaiming the same thing with just one tweak. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ has come again. And that's our primary marker of identity as a church body. You know, it's no secret, I don't think, uh, or at least to me it's been no secret, that it's been kind of a rough year for Christian unity in, in, in some senses. And by the way, I want to say this by saying that this is not unique in the history of Christianity. Every year has been rough in its own way for Christian unity. We'll talk a little bit about why that is. And mainly it's because this is the very place that the evil one likes to attack the most. But, you know, Christians in, in some quarters have been irritated with one another, uh, which is actually more tragic than it sounds because Paul tells us here in an echo of the words of Jesus in John 17 that the fact that the Holy Spirit can knit together diverse people into one body and have them love one another and care for one another, that very fact is the central witness to the truth of the gospel. Jesus actually says that in John chapter 17, verse 21. He's praying for the church, and he's praying for the unity of the church, and in praying for the unity of the church, he says this, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, they may also be in us. Now listen to this part. So that the world may believe that you sent me. I can shorten that verse a little bit to say this. That the church may all be one, unified, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
it is the central marker that we have. In other words, what, what Jesus is saying is that you don't have to be the world's best debater. You know, you don't have to be able to answer every philosophical question that somebody could, you know, ask you about the Christian faith to be a, a faithful witness to Jesus. But what is primary is the unity of the body of Christ. It is a testimony to the truth of the gospel. But we've had a lot of different things that could potentially identify us over the course of the year. We've had a lot of different things over the, the past that we could elevate to be primary instead of keeping at their proper places of being secondary or even tertiary. And, and that has been a struggle. You know, partisan conflict or, you know, conflict over competing approaches to, uh, to mercy and justice or conflict over um, responses to COVID-19. I was on a email chain with a, a group of pastors in our presbytery. That means a group of pastors in, you know, kind of our local geographic area. It was about something completely different. But one of the pastors, who's an elder statesman, along with me, I'm actually an elder statesman in our presbytery, but one of our pastors who's an elder statesman in our presbytery actually said, of all of the years that I've been in pastoral ministry, this has been the most difficult. This has been the year that has been filled with the most pain, the most conflict, uh, the most stress, and the most frustration. And I do think a lot of pastors have kind of felt that. I have heard of one other church in our denomination that is, that is kind of like on the edge of literally splitting, literally dividing, uh, like one church becoming more than one church over kind of the issues of how they're responding or, you know, to uh, COVID protocols and things like that. Those things are very real. And uh, in, in, in some ways, uh, even using kind of the same inflammatory language that we have seen in our culture um, to, to do some of those things. So the, the problem that Paul articulates here and that Jesus articulates is that that kind of disunity, and I'm not saying everybody having the same opinion about everything, that's, that's impossible. But, the, but love and charity, which means thinking, about, thinking the best about someone rather than thinking about the worst, all of those things are actually testimonies of the power and the truth of the gospel. They're testimonies to the power and the truth of the gospel. If Jesus is to be believed, uh, that, that unity is the central method of evangelism that the church has. So the mystery of God is the union and unity of diverse human beings, this new community called the church, which is knit together by a common faith and not knit together centrally by any other kind of marker of our identity. Now here's the second question. To whom is that mystery revealed? Paul says this mystery is revealed to whom? Now, if I were writing Ephesians, and it's a very good thing that I'm not writing Ephesians, because if I were, it would not be inspired by the Holy Spirit. It would be a very different book. But if I were writing it, logically, I would be thinking, so this mystery of the union of Jews and Gentiles, of the creation of this church of diverse people, is revealed to the world. This union is revealed to... Um, you know, to, to everybody that surrounds us. That actually is true, but that is not what Paul says here. In verse 10, he says something that's a little bit of a head-scratcher. He says, the church 
in its common bond, knit together by a common faith, makes known the wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the unity of the church is not only testifying to the world, it's testifying to Satan and his, his evil ones, you know, and his demons. That's odd a little bit, but that's what Paul says. So before we unpack why that may be, let's, let's think about a question here. So have this in the back of your head. If it is true, as Jesus says in John 17, that the unity of the church leaning and, 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 and identifying primarily on our common faith, so treating with one another with grace and with charity and love, if the unity of the church is the central witness to the good news of the gospel to a watching world, if you were wanting to break that apart, where would you attack? That's where you would attack. If you were Satan and you were, if you were Satan and you were wanting to attack at the central evangelistic um, tool at the disposal of the church, which is our unity and love for one another, where would you hit it? You'd hit it right there, right? That would be the crack in the dam that you would want to exploit and then explode and have all of the water fall out, right? So this is actually incredible because the unity in diversity of the church is first and foremost a victory cry of the church, of Jesus, to the devil. Jesus is pointing to his church and saying, look what I did. I took all of these diverse people from all over the place and instead of having them identify themselves and mark themselves with things that aren't primary, they have united themselves around a common faith in Jesus and look at how they love each other. Look at that, you lose. That's what he's saying. But the devil, who is stubborn and extraordinarily grumpy, bound, bound up, but not fully defeated, is going to thrash right here. He is going to kick, and he is going to scream, and he is going to thrash around, and he is going to try to take casualties of war before the final victory and his final defeat when Jesus returns. And so he thrashes right here. He kicks right here. He attacks at the level of the unity of God's people and he tries to divide us. He, he tries to get the world to look at the church and say, what? They're no different than any of the rest of us. You know, like what's so special about that? That's what he wants to do. And this isn't new. By the way, don't hear me say that all of a sudden we're at like some like turning, like you know, turning point in the history of the world. If, if, if Jesus says the unity of the church is the primary evangelistic tool of the church, then clearly Satan's been attacking at this very place the entire time, right? C.S. Lewis actually talked about this around World War II in the mid-20th century in his masterful little book called The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read The Screwtape Letters, I'd encourage you to do it. Uh, it's a fictional series of correspondence between uh, a senior demon whose name is Screwtape 
And he is the mentor of, a, of his nephew who is a, you know, a tempter in the junior department, like an intern. Uh, or maybe an associate uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the tempting world. And his name is Wormwood. Wormwood has one human being that his job is to, you know, bring safely home, they would say, to hell one day. And his subject became a Christian, which was bad for Wormwood. But Screwtape is trying to encourage him to say, all is not yet lost. We still have some tools at our disposal. And this is what Wormwood writes uh, this is what Screwtape writes to Wormwood at how to you know, extricate his, this new Christian from his faith. He says this, One of the greatest allies at presence is the church itself. Now do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic structure on the new building estate. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy. And they mean Jesus by enemy, by the way, it's a little bit opposite. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Now, you know, in the mid-20th century, squeaky boots, uh, funny clothes, well, singing out of tune, that one still exists, uh, for sure, and that's okay. I love hearing people sing loudly in tune or out of tune. But we can add a million other things to that list, obviously. A million other things that begin to kind of sow distrust in the body of Christ and make you think, huh, or, or, or erode the fact that our primary relationship with one another is a common faith in common Lord. How we educate our children, how we, you know, vote. Are we too aggressive on our protocols? Are we too, you know, cautious on our protocols? You know, you know what are all of those things that we can add into this life that, that the evil one can try to exploit to divide his church? I will say this, when I was reading this email from this other pastor in my presbytery, I was rejoicing, I was hurting for him and many others that are my friends. But one of the things that I was thinking is, gosh, that really hasn't totally been our experience or my experience at Christ the King. You know, I'm super thankful for that. Um, you know, what I've seen over the past year, which has been a really difficult year, people with a lot of diverse opinions about a lot of different things, treating each other with charity and with respect, not assigning motives, not name-calling. I mean, obviously we're not perfect in that, clearly, but really doing our best to stay together in the variety of ways that the Lord has provided for us to come together. But then I got to thinking about this. The last year was kind of the easy part, and the hard part is still to come. 
you know, with, with something like coronavirus or something like COVID, the easy part is unplugging the plug, you know, which we did mass, last March. Just, you know, all of a sudden, that's it, you're done, you know. You go to plug that plug back in and you see prongs there that you didn't even know were there. Like, where did these come from? I don't think I have a hole for this prong. You know, where does it go? And it gets a little bit more complicated. Um, it's, it's actually uh, easy uh, to to kind of unplug and it's more difficult um, to kind of restore things. And I think most every single person in, that is alive in the world, not only in, in, in this church or in any other church, is going to have an opportunity to be frustrated or disappointed in any decisions that are made in the next kind of days or weeks. I'm, I'm okay with that. My, my goal was not to make everyone happy. I'm fine if people are upset at me. It's the goal of our leadership to make the best decisions that we can, given the scriptures and other resources at our disposal. But the reason I wanted to bring this up, at, you know, with some fear and trepidation at being misunderstood, is because I do think we're at actually a critical point. I do think that we're at a, a, a critical and important juncture in the life of our church where we're all going to have to give something up and we're all going to be a little bit disappointed in something somewhere and we're all going to have to lean on what our primary identity marker is and not what our other identity markers are. What is ultimately going to define us as a church? What is ultimately going to unite us as a church? What is ultimately going to signal to the world you know, that that no matter kind of where we are in, in, our, in our own personal lives, that we are a body who loves one another, that cares for one another, that thinks better of one another because it is so countercultural to do that. And when something is so countercultural, that's when the world looks in and goes, okay, first of all, y'all are weird, but second of all, where can I get a little bit of that in my life? Because I don't know any other place, you know, where you do. The only possible way to do that is to remain committed to the way of life of the follower of Jesus that's articulated by our Lord himself and further emphasized by the Apostle Paul that, you know, that we unify over our common profession of faith in a common Lord and we set aside our own desires for the good of the entire body. In the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, we consider each other better than ourselves. And the only possible way to do this, because this is not natural for us. And when I say not natural for us, I mean it just in that way. By nature, by nature, we, because we are born sinful, we are self-absorbed by nature. We just are. I am, you are, we all are. You've seen people probably in other spheres of your life try to kind of gut it out, you know, in serving other people. You know, in a marriage, you can do this for so long, but at some point, you know, you kind of run into a stress point if the Holy Spirit's not actually working on that, you know, because the, 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 the Holy Spirit's the only one who can really do that. So there's only one thing that will possibly be allow us to do that, and the world does not offer it. It's our common faith and our common Lord expressed in our common confession formed in us by the power of the Holy Spirit that is gifted to us by Jesus. And so every single day, if we wake up, this might actually be a very good exercise for me. I think I'm going to do this. Every single day that we wake up, 
if we start the day by saying Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. We're preparing ourselves, we're preparing our hearts to be united as a body and a witness to the world of the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have done. You have done the impossible by uniting people from every tribe, nation, and language under heaven in a common identity centered on Christ. Father, we rejoice in that, and we pray that you would help us to lean into that as we move forward in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.